This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Arjun Sethi is the co-founder and partner at Tribe Capital. He previously built multiple successful companies with nine-figure exits as well. In this conversation, we discuss market timing for product market fit, the cyclical nature of growth tactics, slow versus fast money, N of one companies, and Tribe's view on cryptocurrency. I really enjoyed this conversation with Arjun, and he didn't disappoint. Before we get into the episode, I want to talk about the two sponsors for today. The first is Crypto.com. They're a pioneering payment and cryptocurrency platform that seeks to accelerate the world's transition to cryptocurrency. They have a vision to put cryptocurrency in every wallet, which is frankly why we're all here. The Crypto.com app offers a full range of financial products with competitive pricing, well-designed user experience, and high security. It is the best place to buy, sell, and pay with crypto. These guys have been longtime supporters of the Pomp Podcast and keep launching new product after new product. So do yourself a favor and go to Crypto.com to check them out. Again, Crypto.com, the place where mass adoption is occurring. The second sponsor is BlockSet by BRD or Bread. If you're building in the blockchain space, you got to know about them. Their goal is to enable the next wave of developers and business leaders to build amazing applications. BlockSet offers accessible data from all the major chains through a single easy-to-use API. It acts as your hosted blockchain infrastructure, and it ultimately enables high-quality apps to be built at a fraction of the cost in a fraction of the time. Go sign up for a free developer account at BlockSet.com and start building today. They were built by BRD, Bread, one of the first wallets in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken everything that they've learned over the past six years to create BlockSet, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Thanks to them, you can now build at light speed using their unified API that is data from all the major chains. Go check it out at BlockSet.com. Again, BlockSet.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Arjun. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you do as well. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Arjun here. Uh, thanks so much for doing this, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. For sure. Let's just jump right into uh, to your background. You were one of uh, one of the rare folks who's actually built a successful business, uh, exited, worked at a large corporation, and now spends time investing. Um, so kind of just walk us through your background. Yeah, I uh, so I actually grew up in the Valley. So my dad had been in the startup ecosystem, my mom was there as well. Uh, and I, so I kind of watched them literally start their companies in the garage. My dad's first company that he'd started was a company called Berkeley Networks. Uh, there was just a ton of folks that came from Boston East Coast area. This is a, you're talking about semiconductor networking. See the real people that built real companies at that time. They would, uh, uh, they, you know, they, they would literally be sleeping in the garage. Um, some people were in their backyard in their tents. Um, I'm forgetting what kind of car someone had, but it was essentially like this big Volkswagen, like camper van uh, in front of our house. And he would sleep in there and he would just come in and take showers. And so I, I kind of watched that. And, and to be frank, I, I saw that and, uh, and thought to myself, <clears throat> why would anyone ever want to go through this much pain 
to start a company. Uh, and, and, and again, being a kid uh, in your mind, uh, you think of starting a company as like, you know, starting a shop uh, at a retail location, maybe it's 7-Eleven or, or something like that. And uh, 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 so, so never, I, I never really like grasped uh, uh, growing up what it really meant uh, to start a company or what was venture scalable, what was high growth, um, you know, uh, what was revolutionary versus what's disruption oriented. Um, and so I, I actually, um, and I, I think we kind of shared this, I actually had, you know, enlisted for uh, the army in 99. Um, and so I went, I, I went through basic, uh, got out and, you know, they take, they gave you a series of tests uh, to see, um, essentially they're testing your IQ level around uh, what are the types of things you can do. And so I never went into any sort of standard MOS. I actually went straight to the Department of Defense and there started contracting with them uh, before I was deployed out with uh, folks in the army between 99 and 03. Uh, and during that time frame, I, I think what I, I started learning was that there are so many unwritten rules to the rules and there's just so, uh, 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 you can push uh, the boundary as much as possible by just learning what's available, what's not. So I started taking classes. Uh, uh, I went to community college at the same time. Uh, there's something at the time called community college at the air force. I don't know if you remember that because uh, the army didn't provide it and then you know, different uh, uh, military stipulations. And so then I eventually just transferred to University of Maryland uh, at College Park, uh, taught a little bit of ROTC there as well. Um, and then just, you know, studied math and history, never finished math. I only finished history. Uh, and then the startup ecosystem was actually starting to get hotter and hotter uh, in California where I grew up. Uh, so I came back and started a bunch of companies. And while I appreciate it, you said, hey, uh, I had a successful company, I had maybe 10 or 11 uh, you know, uh, uh, starts that didn't work. They all failed. Um, and they're not on my LinkedIn. I don't talk about them because they're embarrassing. Uh, but I, I tried everything, you know, uh, uh, photo, photo sharing to uh, micropayments to you know, payments and wallets. This is, this is pre-iPhone. This is during J2ME and Brew, and you're trying to figure out how to use the phone. Uh, so timing was off, obviously, by, you know, uh, 10 to 15 years, but uh, that was my background. And then, and then eventually, you know, I started a social gaming company uh, uh, out of my time from Facebook uh, on, the, uh, on the Facebook platform. It was a company called Lolaps. We scaled very quickly. I would say we had a lot of tailwinds and luck on our side. And, you know, we went to zero to 100 million in monthly active uniques, zero to 100 million revenue at some point. Uh, but it was never a straight line. It went, kept going up and down uh, because our, our game would scale and then it wouldn't. And then we get another game and that wouldn't. And so a lot of what we tried to do is get enough games to build distribution. Once we had distribution, we started uh, distributing other people's products. We became our own platform and not just here in the United States on Facebook, but we eventually moved to mobile. Uh, we started publishing games from Asia here in the United States and back into Asia and different markets. Uh, and eventually we were acquired by Nexon in 2011. Uh, so for about a quarter of a billion. Uh, and, and that was uh, alongside a merger with a company called Six Wave. So we all kind of came together and we were their outfit to publish games on mobile. Uh, and so that was, you know, that was a wild ride because you, we were taught um, how to scale an organization. So we went to a couple hundred people, fired a couple hundred people, went down to 30. Uh, uh, scaled again to a couple thousand people, 
fired uh, 500, 600 people because the games had oscillated. Um, and then we, uh, you had to build uh, infrastructure from, from the ground up. So bottoms up, had to think about what it meant to build uh, data architecture, what it meant to measure your customers, what it meant, what A-B testing really meant during that time frame. Uh, again, AWS was just coming, and so we were using, you know, uh, 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 products like SoftLayer, which eventually got acquired by IBM. And, and remember, during this time, this is this is the first time where storage started getting cheaper. You could retrieve it faster. You could analyze on top of it. This is when data and analytics companies started emerging at a faster pace. Uh, so that was the time when uh, I was growing up, and my and my companies were. Uh, uh, either succeeding or failing, but uh, uh, this is how you built your product and engineering teams. And so kind of fast forward from there, you know, I started another company called MessageMe, sold that to Yahoo. I was on the executive team there, scaled their whole mobile uh, unit out to you know, a couple billion um, uh, in, in revenue from zero, uh, where they went from desktop to mobile. Uh, so, and, and we also acquired 250 companies. It's kind of a wild ride. And the only thing that helped us uh, uh, from our portfolio approach was using some sort of data uh, uh, analysis or frameworks uh, uh, to be able to leverage the data to make decisions in the future. And, and a lot of people say they just use the word data and analytics and then and they think all their problems are solved. That, that's, that's not true, right? It's more about what are you measuring? What are your frameworks? What's the philosophy around the data that you're collecting? And then how are you going to make decisions based off of that? And I, and, I, and I think, you know, the companies that have done that really well, uh, have been uh, Google during their time. Facebook probably you know, the most prominent of them. Um, and we're more biased there because that's our background. It's where a lot of our team comes from. Jonathan, my co-founder at Tribe, you know, essentially invented the data science practice at Facebook when he started there. Uh, so so a, lo a lot of, you, know, you, ha you have to kind of think about what does data help you do? And I started thinking about what, does, what can data help us do in the private venture landscape? You saw a lot of companies and hedge funds um, and, and funds in general use you know, third-party data sets and uh, publicly available data sets uh, to start thinking about um, how to invest in the public markets and have some sort of edge. And, and, and you, we've all heard that story. You know, there's a, the famous folks at Renaissance. They have their strategy. But you know, the, the list of uh, folks that have been successful have been pretty long. And we, you know, we, we thought, okay, well, on, on, in the private markets, uh, what's most important? And what was most important was the same work that we used to do when we built a company from the ground up from scratch, which is you have all this data, um, storage is getting cheaper, retrieval of that is cheaper, and you should be able to analyze it. So what are the frameworks that you use to make good decisions? Uh, and so I eventually joined a firm called Social Capital. Um, and, you know, there was three co-founders. Uh, Chamath, who's more, more famously known because he was at uh, Facebook as well and, and had started, you know, the, the growth initiatives and this type of thinking within Facebook. Uh, but he had also helped start this ecosystem of thinking, in, in my opinion, uh, across the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Um, and uh, I had joined because Social Capital was the only firm that was thinking about uh, leveraging data from companies, uh, their primary data, to build bottoms up view to make better decisions. Uh, and so what I really pushed for during that time uh, was, great, we can do that, but how can we help to augment the companies that we work with? Uh, how can we make better decisions ahead of time? How can we store and query this over time so that we can get better at our decision-making? But as venture capitalists, how to augment our time 
uh, of, you know, of our experiences, right? Like I've been an entrepreneur at scale companies, who cares? Uh, there's a certain amount of time that goes by that it's less relevant, but it only becomes relevant if I have uh, uh, data and context to understand how companies work uh, and what's really happening versus, hey, I, I saw this company 10 years ago do this, or I saw another company six months ago did this, you should do it too. Those are not really helpful. And a lot of my investors in my past used to do that. They would come into a board meeting and they would basically just, you know, reflect on other companies and what they were doing. And I remember one time there was this one investor who said, let's take a look at um, Living Social and Groupon and you guys are very good at distribution. We should do the same thing. And I was like, we have uh, a distribution retention for our games. Uh, we make money. Uh, we have well, a profitable unit economics and we want, we need to scale that. And I think a lot of people focus on short term metrics, short term vanity metrics in some cases. Uh, and so a, a lot of, you know, my time and my colleagues time have been spent around what's the data that matters, the philosophy behind it and how do you automate and build abstraction layers on top of that to make better decisions. Yeah, so let, let's go back for a second. The the thing that you said in terms of you started a bunch of companies, some worked, some didn't, uh, but timing was a big piece of this. Uh, yeah. I want to start at kind of a 10,000 foot view of just, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially earlier in their careers, don't understand that this may be the most important factor, right? It's just if the idea's time has come type thing. Maybe talk a little bit about through your experience, both in starting a company at the wrong time and then also starting one, you know, kind of at the right time with the Facebook platform and stuff like that. Yeah, so if you, if you use the word timing, uh, you know, it really goes back to, in, in my opinion, four pedestals. But people talk about product market fit. Product market fit is essentially just that it, it, it fits within a certain time frame. And then you have a product that is working. Uh, how do you quantify that? In a market that has demand for that product, how large is that market at that time? <clears throat> um, um, and then what's the team behind it that substantiates those two aspects? And I'd say the other pedestal in our, our opinion that people kind of forget about is the distribution of that product into that market. Um, and, and that's another piece there. I, I would say, you know, the, the uh, uh, timing really equals product market team and distribution uh, as a whole, if you, were, if you want to look at it as a formulaic uh, perspective. And the, you know, the, the products that I, were, I was building and my colleagues were building, um, you, you can say that either the timing was off that the market wasn't ready for it or the product you built just wasn't working for the market that existed, right? Like it, it's kind of either or. Uh, and I would say all of my products had a failure of one of the two uh, at any given point when we, when we first started, right? Where, um, you know, the market was fairly saturated with a ton of the same types of products. So what you were building wasn't any differentiated. It was a commodity. Um, and so we call that kind of red ocean markets, right? Where you're just building the same thing uh, it doesn't feel monopolistic. It doesn't feel like there's a unique value proposition uh, unless there's something really unique. And sometimes unique means distribution, um, but a lot of companies don't have that either. But when you're starting off from scratch, you know, say zero to one, you don't have distribution. Uh, you're trying to figure out what's the wedge to get that distribution. And then in terms of uh, how do you evaluate that, right? So like I'm an entrepreneur, I want to go actually build a, uh, this company. I've got this idea. How do I evaluate? Is this the right time for the product? Yeah, you know, that's, that, what, what I'd say is who fucking knows, right? I, I think the part of that is that there's a certain amount of risk that you're underwriting in the beginning. 
you know, maybe it's a vertically integrated SaaS play into a certain type of market that's never seen software. Are they ready for it or not? Who knows? Maybe it's in a market that's not the United States, it's outside. So it could be energy, um, you know, real estate insurance. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, I, I think there's just a certain amount of risk capital that's needed and a certain amount of risk attribution of founders and teams that start with, hey, I've got this idea. I think I have this problem that I can solve. Let's just get it out there and see how the market reacts. And so, uh, so I'd say there's a certain amount of risk capital for that uh, and the types of people and partners that you want. There's no data uh, at that time, right? Especially like, let's just say you and I are starting a company, the two of us, um, uh, or, and, and maybe we get two to three people to uh, act on top of it. Um, what we're really doing is we're just building some sort of prototype. We're building something that has capital expenditures towards some sort of ROI. And that ROI might be nothing is that, hey, we just learned that this doesn't work. Uh, or we just learned that the market doesn't exactly want our product this way. Uh, we're seeing all these demand signals to go a different direction. Let's build in that direction. And that's typically what you see for a lot of companies. Um, it's really rare. Uh, it does happen though, that someone says that I have this unique insight, I'm gonna build this product and then I'm gonna be able to sell it. What typically happens is they'll make that pitch and then they come out with the product um, and then they start tweaking it for their customer, tweaking and tweaking and tweaking it until they, they've honed in on it. Sometimes those companies start off as services, which is what we all know, uh, uh, some what SaaS has really turned into. And either that's top down, mid market or bottoms up. Um, but you know, the, 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 main, the main thing I would think through is that you know, uh, there's no real data in the beginning. You gotta have some sort of keen insight. And then as time goes on, and especially in today's day and age, you do have data that, you, uh, that, are, that you're collecting uh, on how your customers are interacting with your product. And, and, and the beauty of software products are, is that there's a ledger to it. You're, there's breadcrumbs of how people use it. Um, and that's actually where we come in, is that we have like this guide map of what it looks like to be a healthy company for your industry at your stage and life cycle. And here's how you should measure yourself against that or benchmark yourself against that. Uh, and if you can do that, then you know where you are in the quadrant or gradients of healthy to unhealthy. It's kind of like, you know, getting ready to run a marathon. Can you run it? Yeah. And, and I guess part of this whole idea of market timing is one, when are you bringing the actual product to market, uh, but also uh, the growth tactics, right? You talk about the distribution. Obviously there was a point in time where using Facebook uh, for massive distribution and growth made a lot of sense. Maybe some would argue now it doesn't. How do you think about also the timing of the growth tactics that you're using? You know, um, you know what uh, I find interesting is if you, uh, uh, I was actually reading a uh, book um, from Howard Box, uh, Marks on Mastering the Market Cycles. But what it really reminded me of is the cycles of distribution. That the same distribution techniques always work. It's just when do they work? Uh, and at what time do you use them? Right, like if you go back in history, you know, there's people um, that were using, um, you know, the, 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 the first ads uh, uh, for newspapers from the, the late 1800s and the, uh, even the early 1900s to sell snake oil, right? And like vitamins and, and medicines or, or liquors or whatever they called it. Um, and those tactics are the same things that people use today. Um, it's just that do you have the ability to make it work or not, right? Where you know, five hour energy just grew very quickly because they were on TBS at like late nights when people were tired. Um, and so, so I think like if you, if you have a much more longer term perspective on what distribution channels work and what don't, you know, email still works, SMS still, SMS still works. 
um, uh, newspaper advertisements still work. It just depends on what your product is, who your audience segmentation is, and, uh, and do you have a unique value proposition that will work? Uh, I've, I've always kind of found it interesting that people say, hey, we have this new, unique distribution that we're going to go after. And then you can go back to it and say, okay, well, over the last 50 years, like these are the people that have done it. Maybe we should just learn about how to do it better. Does your audience segmentation work there or not? I've always seen people try to use, you know, the, the Facebook tactics that we had used, you know, for enterprise infrastructure or, hey, let's, use, let's just buy some ads on Facebook for a top-down sales model. And, and, I've, and I've always questioned that and I said, well, why would you do that? Um, that's not where your audience lies. It's not where your segmentation lies. It's not where you're going to have intent. What's the point? Um, and so, you know, while we get these new channels, it's just, it's, you know, more of the same. Uh, it's just about how do you use those channels and, and how are you efficient with it? Yeah. One of the differences, uh, in the private markets and venture capital compared to the public markets, the public markets have a price associated to the asset every day it trades. Uh, there's a lot of volatility. And so emotion becomes much easier to, uh, manipulate just because they're seeing something go up or down in value in venture sure. capital. You don't necessarily have uh, the day to day price movements, uh, yeah. but there's definitely a motion that gets involved in decision-making. You guys, I think have done a good job of just being super data driven. Maybe talk a little bit about how at tribe you guys are using data, how it, um, you know, uh, affects the decisions you make and how you guys are using that, uh, once you make an investment to support the companies. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a couple of ways to answer that question. Um, there, you know, uh, one is pe people use the word data driven where, um, I'm really averse to that, uh, because it just means that you're just going to go, um, like you're not going to be, you're not going to think about what this data means in the first place. And so we like to use the word data informed internally. And so we came out with this framework uh, called the eight ball um, where it was essentially how do we quantify product market fit for any company that uses software or is enabled by technology in some way. And you know, the, the reason we had that was it's, it's akin to financial accounting, right? If you, if you look at a statement of cash flow or balance sheet, uh, you know, P and L, et cetera, these are standardized frameworks that were invented in the late 1800s to help guide you on what are the transparent things that you want to look at for a company before you dig in deeper? So if you, if you look at a financial accounting statement, there's a very good chance that you won't be interested based on the financials, right? Like there, you might say no, right? Like you're, you're nodding your head saying like, yeah, like that company doesn't feel healthy to me. So I'm just going to pass them and look onto the next thing. However, if you, if you find something that's interesting and say like, you know, this, the way in which this company has cash management uh, or efficiency, um, or, you know, overall, um, uh, 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 their overall cash flow in nature, uh, maybe I should dig in deeper and you start doing your work from there. Then you start thinking about demand signals. What does the overall, uh, what, uh, what does their customer base look like? What's the recurring nature of it? Um, uh, what, the, what does the margin structure look like? Uh, if it's lower, is there, is the market big enough? Is the volume large enough where they can get to a certain scale? You start asking these bigger questions about different industries but then you're able to compare multiple companies to each other um, uh, by using this and then dig in deeper. But you know what, uh, in the private markets, one of the issues has always been, how do you do that? What are the standardized frameworks that you use? Can, can you actually measure it? And financial statements don't work as well for early stage, mostly because um, those are all lagging indicators. So if you're, if you're investing in a seed plus or series A or series A, a lot of these companies have 
really de minimis revenue um, or revenue that's really not going to uh, uh, paint its picture yet. Uh, and that's coming later. And so you're looking at forms of demand or engagement, which is what I call it. And so you have to have standardized frameworks for that. And that's really where we spent almost all of our time. Now you can take that and say, okay, great. You can actually do more. The more data you have, you can do more of that for even later stage companies. And we do that as well uh, because uh, investors typically kind of what I'd say regress to the mean is they just go back to the finances and say, Hey, they said they're going to do this, but I don't see it reflected in the finances. Sure. But you could have said that for Facebook, Airbnb, Uber at some point, um, kind of, you know, Google at some point as well. Like uh, you would never really understand how these businesses work unless you could look at what we call the software ledger. Um, and that's understanding the demand signals for how a company works. So our framework was called the APOL. We published this, uh, you know, about six years ago, uh, my uh, partner had done this. He had published this actually uh, even while he was at Facebook. <clears throat> and, you know, if you're, if you're coming into Facebook today as a product manager, you read this. If you are learning uh, product market fit quantitatively, like uh, what are the frameworks that you use at Stanford? They reflect our work. If you go to Sequoia's website, they have a section for product market fit. It links back to our work because we created a standardized framework to understand product market fit for a company at a certain life cycle. Um, and, and that's what we do really well is to just get those frameworks out for ourselves. Uh, and we have a ton of software to help automate that. We have a ton of software that stores all this for every company we've ever seen. So we can get better at better at not just evaluating, but giving this insights and feedback back to the company. Like if you're a founder and you're starting a company, the first question you ask everyone is like, what does it take to raise a series seed? What does it take to raise a series A? What does it take to raise a series B? What are the milestones I need to achieve? And we basically say, here are the fucking milestones that you need to achieve. And it's, uh, and here's the gradients of, of where you need to be. And, and, and here's what use of proceeds really look like and, and, and what people are going to gauge you on. And this is what we tell our entrepreneurs. This is where we think we can help. But uh, more importantly, because it's standardized, this is where this is a standardized framework you can use to reflect back to the market as well. And so we use this as a foundation to understand where a company is at its, uh, um, at its life cycle and then what it's going to take to scale. Like what, um, you know, uh, uh, is this going to take 20 million, 50 million, 80 million of sub, uh, subsidization of venture capital or other uh, source of capital to get us to a certain size of scale? It's what venture capital is all about, right? Which is the, the velocity of growth is what people are trying to invest in. I think a lot of people kind of forget that, right? Is it, is it a sublinear path? Is it super linear or is it just linear? And all companies have different, uh, uh, different stages. And, and at some point I'm sure we'll talk about network effect because we've both also come from that same background. Um, but that's just as important, right? It, uh, is that you can only really think about network effect if you have a foundation to understand where a company is in its life cycle and do they have product market fit or not? Uh, you know, frankly, most products don't have product market fit and that's what you want to know. Do you want to spend your time as a founder on something that's not working? And, and in my opinion, if I knew that earlier on, I would say I wouldn't want to have done those 10 things. I would want to only focus on the two that started working because it had product market fit. Yeah. And I think part of this, what you're highlighting in terms of Sequoia and Facebook, uh, really covering this stuff is the first part of this is it, it's a mindset. It's a philosophy, right? Of looking at building a business in a very scientific way, uh, measuring this stuff. And the part to me that's always uh, been shocking is once you kind of uh, see the lighter or you get uh, indoctrinated to this, 
then you look at user metrics, you see a whole different part of the business because it's not so much, hey, how many users do you have right now? You start asking differentiated questions like, what's your week over week growth, your month over month growth? What's the retention right. look like? Like right. those more nuanced questions can tell you so much more about the business. And really what you guys have done is you've built software that can do this in a very automated, fast way and also compare it back to other companies you've seen. Yeah, I mean, what we tell any companies that we work with and you know, we always say, feel free to ask any of our companies why they wanted to work with us is, uh, I mean, you pretty much have the Facebook, the Uber, or the Airbnb data science team as your capitalists. And, 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 I, and, I, and I say that not in a, uh, in a joking way, is, but that's our background. That's what we've been doing. And as individuals without software, we can only take you so far. And that's what most of the um, Joe Schmoes of the Valley and the investors are, is that they pick someone or a, a collection of individuals that had some experiences qualitatively and bring them into a firm and say like, this is your guy or this is your girl. And she's going to help you um, uh, get to where you want to uh, get to where you want to get to. Well, the problem with that, as you know, is that um, we just talked about cycles of things changing. Things change so fast. You know, the things that worked for my companies uh, over the past 10 years are not going to necessarily reflect or work in the future. So what do you do? Well, you got to start with some sort of foundation. You got to understand your, uh, your data. You got to understand the ground truth of what's working at your company to be able to make more informed decisions. So if you are a network effect company, or if you're a marketplace company, uh, or you're a widget company, you're a grocery company, you're, you know, you're redefining what it means to be a delivery company here in the United States today, you know, given the COVID uh, uh, pandemic and, and environment, what, how should you think about measuring yourself? Uh, versus, you know, what, you know, Facebook measures themselves again, you know, like DAU over MEU doesn't make sense. So it's more about like, you know, what, what are the ground truth type metrics and demand signals that matter? And then the unit economics behind it. And a lot of people have their own framework for thinking through it. My biggest issue has always been, those are always lagging indicators, right? Like looking at someone's finances are lagging indicators for early stage, not late stage. And so how do you then take uh, this super data informed approach where you do have access to that software legend you talk about. Uh, do you say, hey, we're just gonna listen to the data and the data is gonna tell us what to invest in and what not to? Or is there still an element of like, uh, kind of the art of investing or what a lot of people say, it's my gut, it's my you know, personal um, you know, position or, or opinion on this, not actual data? Yeah, you know, I, I, I always go back to look, uh, the, wh why do you partner with uh, venture capitals in the first place? Um, the ideal situation is that they're, they are long-term patient capital with you um, that knows that your business is going to have ups and downs. You're not having price discovery like the private markets on a daily basis, right? You're only having price discovery, you know, sort of maybe uh, uh, like twice a year, um, if that, that, that seems at a, at a high frequency already. And what, what, you're, what you're really trying to do is understand micro and macro. And I think this is important, right? And, and the data sets behind that. Uh, and, and right now we've been talking about primary data and micro. Um, and, and understand what is it gonna take for use of proceeds uh, to get companies to the next stage, uh, to, to, you know, to get them to a place where they can self-sustain. In some cases, some people call that profitability. Some people call that like, you know, high growth, which is what the market was, um, you know, valuing up until end of December, 2019. Uh, it's, I, I think kind of the, the, the best way to think about it is like, what are, what are the milestones that you're investing for in the future and who are the folks that you're going to have around the table to do that? And so I, again, I go back to, 
the context has always been let's focus on people. And then as you mentioned, gut driven investments, um, or, um, can you get a foundation or a context of a certain type of company? Uh, and do you have software that helps augment that with, you know, with their workflow to help me be a better investor or help me be a better board member or an active investor. Remember at the end of the day, you have these active investors around you, right? That are coming on the board, you're spending time with them. Um, uh, they, they strategically, you need, you need them to help you. They have a brand in some capacity. They have a network as well, uh, for helping to hire or, you know, corporate M and A, et cetera. And so, uh, you're choosing them. And so the, the people you choose are just as important as them having context into your business. And so the way I kind of explain this is, look, if I'm around a dinner table and let's say, you know, it's a, it's a corp dev style conversation, you should expect your investors to have almost the same context into your business that you have. Maybe I'm not going to have all the nuances on like what you AB tested last week. Of course not. Um, but I should be able to explain your business from the bottoms up around uh, why it's so important. And if I can do that around the dinner table or, you know, over a zoom call like this, uh, because I have context, I have, um, you know, my data informed methodologies to do that, that will just make us better investors regardless. And I think that's always the case. Uh, that's the case when you are a GM of a, uh, uh, of a business unit, uh, or a head of product for a company. It's the same thing. Head of product has no idea what's happening at the latest AB test, you know, three or four orders down. Like if you trace it, they don't know. They're, they're, they're hoping that their teams are accountable to get stuff done. And, and the same way I think about it as uh, on our side, which is as active investors and minority investors in many cases, we should be accountable to understand what's happening at our company. And then therefore the second order and third order effects of that is that we can help them strategically because we just know what's going on. If you ask any, you know, um, VC out there, how is your company doing? They'll say that person is great. They have, they, they know what they're doing. I love uh, how they're attracting the customer base, like all these high level uh, fluffy duffy shit. Um, and, and then what they'll say is they're killing it, even if they're not. And, and you have no idea what's happening. Um, and it, you know, if I, and if I was a employee and I got introduced to a, VC that just gave me those, I, I just, why would I work there? It just means that my investors have no idea what's going on. And I, and I can only really underwrite the team and, and the CEO, um, the capital around the table won't matter. And, and our whole goal is capital around the table should matter because in the past it has mattered. Um, and if you really look at the venture capital industry and where they've been the most helpful, that's been the case. Yeah. Speaking of that, you guys recently put together uh, some work and, and uh, pulled a bunch of data and analyzed uh, around this idea of fast money and slow money. Maybe talk a little bit about what that means and then what that work showed. Yeah. So we did, we did two things. One was, um, you know, what was the failure rate of companies during some of these downturns? And then what, uh, what are the behaviors of uh, uh, capitalists, you know, regardless of being venture capital, hedge funds, private equity, or family offices, what is their behavior in these types of downturns? And so, you know, what I, I kind of, again, I always go back to, you know, most people don't understand cycles, in my opinion. Um, they, haven't been, they haven't been around long enough uh, to see multiple cycles, and uh, they haven't seen the lessons of past, um, you know, uh, historical cycles. And, and so, you know, our, our goal was, you know, in, in the last two uh, pieces that we wrote for, uh, you know, for our founders and, and our audience, and even our LPs was to kind of uh, give a perspective again on like, this is short term, 
regardless of whatever we're saying, it feels like every day is a year and it feels like every week is a, a decade, is that, um, you know, in, in six months, the world is going to be different. And so what you really want to know is um, what's going to be ahead um, uh, in the future after the cycle, right? Like, uh, uh, and are you, are you, are we in fear mode or greed mode? And, and I would argue right now we're in fear mode. Um, and so what's happening is that that's been augmenting and propelling the way in which people behave. And so our whole goal was that uh, in these analyses, if you read through them, uh, you know, who are the folks that have the most fear? How do they retreat and how do they treat you? And are those the types of partners you want to have around the table in a time of despair and fear? Uh, or do you want to have partners, which we could define as slow money, that are going to be there um, you know, through, uh, through the thick of it to understand where you are and continue to support you? And that may not be capital. It just may be like, hey, strategically, we should think about doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, whereas the other folks, you know, they have a, a, a trade mentality or a... Um, a flight to safety mentality. And, and sometimes that mentality is not helpful towards company building, um, a multiple building and compounding. Yeah. And, and I guess part of that is uh, you guys looked at not only the uh, frequency of activity, but also kind of pre, during, and after uh, these crisis periods, you know, where people even just around, right? Because I think one of the, the most telling things was just, there's a lot of transactional firms that uh, were super active, you get crisis, and then they basically disappear. They're, they're yeah. not even there anymore. Forget about being you know, not great partners, they just disappear. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, every as much as every cycle is similar, every cycle is also different. Uh, um, and so if you go back far enough, right, like you can go back to the eighties, you can go back to the early nineties and then obviously the late nineties and then 2001, and then you had 2004 and 2005. Uh, people always forget there's these mini cycles as well, especially in the technology industry. We, we had 2015 uh, and 2016 and on the SaaS side with LinkedIn sort of losing about 50% of their market cap. You have these things happen all the time and, and people can get fearful. And as you know, uh, uh, press, PR, and media can kind of com uh, compound that uh, and, and conflate things uh, where they might not be needed. And, and, and so, so it, it was more about, um, yeah, who, who's you know, the venture tourists or who are the capital tourists in this industry? Um, and, and, you, and you guys obviously had um, you know, the, the same type of winter in the crypto space. And you know, the question is who comes back, who doesn't, who stays around? who kind of believes in the long-term viability of a certain type of new market. And that's the same thing for venture, uh, in my opinion, uh, is that the folks that understand venture, the folks that understand cycles, the folks that understand long-term uh, building are going to be sticking around. Uh, and they might not be able to stick around the same way they were before, but they're still around. Uh, and, and a lot of what we wanted to do was to make sure that we could give this information to our portfolio first, as well as the community around how to think about building uh, your long-term strategy uh, over the course of the next year. And, and so you also recently uh, wrote a big piece on Carta uh, and kind of this idea of end of one companies. Maybe let's just start with Carta and kind of walk us through the history you guys have had with that company um, and what's really driving a lot of the conviction there. And then we can get into what end of one really means. Yeah, sure. So to, to give you some background, you know, a lot of our work, uh, uh, as operators, um, you know, from our time in the Facebook ecosystem, uh, uh, at Facebook was essentially, we spent all of our time understanding, uh, and building out data infrastructure products, features to augment and build, uh, network based companies, right? Like that, that's our whole history. Um, and 
when you have a network that's very strong, um, it doesn't matter what industry it's in. You know, you can, uh, you know, you can call it, you know, uh, a network in marketplaces, et cetera. It, it doesn't matter. When you find something that's special and a network is being built, the question you ask is, how big does this get? Uh, and and a lot of humans, in my opinion, have a hard time one thinking linearly, but imagine when you ask them to think exponentially. It's just it's just so hard. Um, and we spent all of our time looking at all types of demand signals, how to quantitatively measure network effect. Everyone says the word network effect, but no one really knows what that means. Every deck that you see for um, even uh, venture investors or companies that are coming in, they'll say, we, we're get, we have this type of network effect and this is why we're growing. And then you ask them to define, okay, well, what does that network effect really mean? They say, oh, we just do paid advertising. Well, that's not really a network effect. Uh, it just means you pay to acquire a customer. Uh, or, you know, we go door to door style sales or bottom up or top down and we have a network effect. You know, people know us, it's our brand. Well, that's also not a network effect. That's a, it's called a brand halo or scale of economy effect. Uh, sorry, economies of scale effect. And so um, what you really want to be able to measure is how your customers interact with each other. What you really want to be able to measure is does your network allow you, does, uh, as your network is being built, are your customers reinforcing each other? Right? So for the example we use for you know, Facebook uh, was that you know, as more and more people came into your network, uh, your experience on the Facebook platform improved. Right? Don't have just one friend, you have seven friends, you have 14, you have 20. And now those friends are sharing photos and those photos, regardless of how many people are uh, linking it and liking it uh, or commenting on it, it's valuable to you. Uh, and that's a network. And so we, we kind of always define uh, uh, Facebook as, you know, the atomic unit around Facebook was actually the photos. You know, you could tag it, you could like it, you could reshare it. Um, and eventually it became a, a media type, right? Where you don't share just your photos, you do videos and articles, et cetera, but you have all of these interaction points that are different and the experiences that uh, different customers have are different. It's not the same, right? Like your experience of the same article is, is, is different than my experience of that same article because of just the way in which we are approaching it. Um, and so you have this platform or this product, uh, but it's different for everyone that's interacting on it. And so, you know, we had never obviously seen anything like that in our lives before in an ecosystem that was created on top of it. Uh, you know, and that story obviously has gone through and, and we've seen companies uh, of similar nature have those uh, types of network effects. You know, all the, Alibaba, I'd argue, being one of them. Uh, you know, companies like WeChat in Asia, et cetera. Um, so you kind of have these things pop up all over the world. And so when you start questioning and say, okay, well, I wonder what type of businesses and products will have similar style network effects in their industry. Uh, and will it be disruptive or rev uh, revolution as that space? The first one we ever saw as investors was Slack. And so we kind of, you know, doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down into that company. Uh, we were the first uh, uh, investors, you know, post pivot when they went from a gaming, gaming company uh, to a messaging company for enterprise. And we saw very similar characteristics of network effect there. We measured that quantitatively. Um, pre-revenue, and I think this is really important, around the engagement that was happening in that network and what that was gonna mean and the, and the, the business that you can build. If you, if you look at Slack's you know, product market fit today um, uh, versus what they had when they started, it's pretty much the same, right? Like you can basically say like, here's their foundation and they've just been able to scale it up uh, using the same sort of techniques. And what you're really augmenting 
um, is uh, the friction they might have created when uh, when that product came out. Right? If, if you really look at uh, what what Slack makes Slack uh, special, it's not just intercommunication, but it's external communication as well. You know, uh, companies communicating with other companies akin to email, and so that was the pitch we made. And that was actually the first time we had taken these frameworks from Facebook and uh, from Slack and started using the word N of one. Um, and, and this is while we were at social capital, we're like using these frameworks and starting to use the word, um, is this company standalone by itself, category defining? Um, does it have monopolistic characteristics for, for the wedge that they've started in? And so this really gave us what I'd say a training ground to understand uh, what uh, it means to have a network effect business and where else could this be applied to? I think we got very lucky we saw the exact same thing quantitatively from the bottoms up for Carta at that time called eShares. Like the pitch of eShares was, uh, and, and I'll give Henry a lot of credit as the CEO there and one of the co-founders was that he said, I want to build a network effect. I don't know what that's going to look like, but in order for me to do it, I need to have this centralized uh, uh, view of the world versus a decentralized view of what everyone else is happening. Right. It was very contrarian. Everyone else at that time was talking about crypto, blockchain distributed systems that I'll be able to interact like, you know, programmable money and currency. And what he came away with is that we need to be able to systematize and, um, you know, work within the bounds of what the customer wants first. And what that really was, was what we called the issuer uh, or the, uh, the assets or the stakeholders uh, for a company. And, and that, and that's what they had built out. And, so it was the first time we saw engagement and network effects quantitatively from the bottoms up of employees engaging on a platform, companies themselves engaging on the platform, you know, similar to payroll like benefits, GPs at firms and their back office engaging with the platform, and then their investors engaging with that platform. Right? You, had, you had this really uh, uh, weird but uh, extremely engaging a set of nodes and edges interacting with each other, but they were so far away from each other at the same time, right? Like you don't have the head of Harvard endowment uh, deal with someone at, you know, Gusto that owns a share, but they're both stakeholders of the exact same asset and they're all in one platform. Um, and so that was really exciting to us. And so, you know, a lot of what we wanted to do was understand, you know, they have one business, which was a core cap table business where you charge to understand, uh, 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 what it you know what it means to manage your cap table and all the stakeholders that come on board there. And there's a lot of competitors in that space at that time, and then they had another business called the 4NA that you had to do in order to define fair market value uh, in order to issue options for your employees. Right, it's very, it's very employee, and company, and issuer uh, specific. And over time, what you were able to see was that as the network got larger and larger, you know, again akin to the the photos parallel that I mentioned for Facebook. Uh, and then building multiple businesses on top of it, uh, a, a Carta started saying, uh, you know, because we had spent a lot of time with them talking about the NN1 framework, talking about what an atomic value means, uh, talking about what it means to have you know, uh, gasoline on top of your atomic value and, and, and how to scale. You know, they, they came up with another product for a different set of customers that were already on the platform that were engaging. And I, th I think this is really important is that you have so many people engaging on the platform, what are the types of products and revenue line items that you use to start monetizing them. Uh, and then they built a, what we call fund administration, which is essentially you know, all the back office uh, uh, work that you need to do to understand your portfolio, uh, all the rules and compliance regulations that go with it for venture funds, private equity funds, and hedge funds. 
and and uh, and they launched that. And so what you had was this new revenue uh, and new engagement and new product and on the same network. And I think this was key, which is that uh, it's all interacting with a portfolio of assets that you own. And then what are the types of products that you uh, build for them? And and what that's really led to is what else can you do? There's banking and financial services for these companies. Uh, in some cases, lending uh, yeah, uh, because you have now a distribution of you know, 15,000 companies in the platform, you know, we say a trillion in equity and we think that's really important. It's kind of akin to DAU of MAUs of, of companies um, uh, of engagement on Facebook platform. Uh, and then you have a million stakeholders in the platform. And so the question you really ask is what happens when you 5X that or 10X that or 20X that, you know, worldwide, this is just in the United States alone. How large of a company is that? Um, and, is, and it's the first time in, in our opinion, in financial history, uh, in the private markets, where you have a really good transparent look through and, 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 and you can start building uh, a new type of market. Uh, like if, 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 if you really think about it, uh, you know, people have talked about uh, democratization of capital in, a, in this country, in the United States, where we're a democracy. Democratization of capital is only like 30, 40 years old, right? like where you had... Um, you know, securitized loans, uh, collateral, uh, 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 collateralization of bond uh, obligations uh, of loans, et cetera. That, that industry is 40 years old. And, and look at how many jobs were created because of that. Look at how much access to capital so much more people got because of that. Uh, new underwriting procedures that came uh, away because of that. Um, and so we kind of we think about card in the same way, which is like what happens when this network gets larger and larger and, and what does democratization of capital look like in the private markets uh, where the liquidity has been so constrained for so long. And actually, this is where I get a lot more excited is what happens now when the crypto markets get involved on top of a platform that has transparency? Uh, what does that actually mean versus a platform that didn't have transparency before? Uh, and, and, I, and I think that's what, we, that's what I start getting really excited about, which not just on Carta, but you know, other areas and industries where you can do this, real estate, uh, you know, uh, go back to mortgages and loans. Uh, you can go back to understanding what does it mean to have uh, access to capital uh, and uh, I would call it democratization of capital in those industries. And what does that look like, not just here in the United States, but worldwide as these things become more and more interconnected, uh, which I think a lot of people forget about. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned uh, is kind of these early uh, stage businesses where you can really start to see the uh, network effects. And so if you put yourself in the operator seat at Facebook, I think it was like, can we get you 10 friends in seven days, right? Or, or, or something like that. Uh, at Slack, I think um, I've read that it was like 2,500 messages among the team. And then you knew that you had them and they were going to stay retained. What were some of the metrics that you saw early on with uh, a business like Carter, which maybe it's not as obvious to people that it's a network effect business, but you guys, by looking at the data, could really tell, is is it number of stakeholders? Is it transactions, logins? Like, like, how do you actually think about that from the more tactical standpoint? Yeah, I mean, if I, I would really urge anyone to read our, uh, you know, Carta Manifesto. Um, there, there are a lot of things that are trade secrets. So I won't go into that. And, you know, uh, it's competitive in some ways to companies that want to uh, compete with Carta in the long term. Uh, but, but, I, but I think you hit the nail in the coffin, which is essentially um, – that the stakeholders on the ecosystem and the equity value behind those stakes is what matters the most. Uh, and and I, don't, I always go back to, it's akin to DAU and MAU, right? Like your form of engagement is that, that not, every, not every asset value or equity is gonna be equal. Uh, and uh, as t 
time goes on, what does that really mean? And what are the types of products that you can build on top of it? Now that that's, that's the main thing. And, and again, you, when you're going back to a company, you're not talking about engagement with people logging in every day. What you're really talking about is the number of stakeholders that are in a company. You know, in, in, in theory, you could say the larger uh, number of stakeholders and the value of that stake that goes up over time makes that stake uh, more important to the ecosystem uh, up until a certain scale. And, and, and the question you have to really ask is like, what are you able to do with that over time? Um, and and what, does the, what do the companies in the ecosystem look like? What does that allow the companies in the ecosystem to do? Um, uh, not just Carta itself, but like I know a lot of people think about Carta, but it's like, if you are a company on Carta, what can you do now? You could stay private longer, just like Microsoft wanted to. They didn't want to go public. Facebook didn't want to go public. What are you allowed to do and how are you able to think about long-term growth? But at the same time, giving people access to be able to participate in that alpha rather than uh, saying it has to be in the public markets in the long-term. And if you really look at it, private markets have just gotten larger and larger and larger and they're growing at an exponential rate. And I think that's the key. It's, it's something that worries me at the same time, but it's also a trend that I don't believe is going away because of the way in which companies need to be built for long-term viability of investments rather than the short-term. Yeah, and so one of the things that uh, people usually talk about is always, how do I find product market fit? How do I build the network effect? Uh, and from the investor seat, people talk about, do you have that monopolistic you know, tendency? You guys use the terminology end of one. But what can happen between when you first get product market fit or network effect uh, and it actually doesn't work out? Like how, how have you seen people either break the network effect or actually make a mistake as they scale? Uh, and the reason why I'm asking that is, is it a situation where uh, kind of like betting on the right market, an average team can be successful because the market forces can take care of it? Or is this something where it's not good enough just to get the initial product market fit or network effect? You've got to really actually uh, make sure that you, you don't screw it up on the way to scale. Yeah, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a really good question. I, I, I would say that any example I give you will have a counter to it in that, uh, you know, I, I, I generally believe that if you are in an excellent market, your team can be average uh, or below average and it'll still work. Um, and, and the reason I say that is there's just so many companies where you can see that. Um, and and I, won't, I won't name names, but I think they're quite obvious when you start digging into you know, who they are. I think it's extremely rare to find a good team uh, in a good market uh, building a good product. And, and, uh, you know, I, I will be bold enough to say that I think, you know, Facebook has been one of those unique companies where they had all three. Uh, and, and you can see that in the way in which they execute and what they do. They've just been very, very good um, uh, uh, at executing their product across all these markets. Now you think about all the other companies uh, and say, okay, well, what do they do really well uh, versus what they don't? And most of these companies, I would just argue, they're just in very, very good markets. Uh, and they were able to have product market fit in those ma uh, markets and they, and they are riding on the tailwinds for it as long as possible. Our goal is to try to find companies that were just like Facebook, that were able to recognize that they had a good product, they need to build out their team and make sure they can continue to execute and that they can continue to ride uh, market tailwinds and use those tailwinds for the next adjacent markets that they want to get into versus hit into headwinds like a lot of companies do over time. Um, and so I don't, I don't have any hard and fast rules there uh, or what we advise, you know, our job as investors is, as I mentioned before, is think about micro and macro. The micro side is where we use our quantitative frameworks 
to help evaluate and judge companies, but then share all that back with the company, right? Like, our companies get like these 40, 50 page reports every quarter and, and they love it. I remember one team came to us and said, hey, we went on an offsite for uh, three days and all we did was go through line by line your guys' whole analysis. And to me, that's, that's great because that means we are adding value to our companies because we're just making them think. We're not telling them what to do. We're not telling them if they are good or bad. We're just giving them raw ground truth and a bottoms up view around how to view themselves. And it's up to them to make decisions on how to execute. Um, and we've been doing that across you know, multiple companies. We do that for a few public companies today. Um, and, uh, and we've been helping you know, some folks even underwrite risk on the debt side using these same frameworks because it's standardized. Uh, and, and it's helpful. Uh, and, and, I, and, I can't, um, and I can't echo that enough. I think it's really important just to make sure you have ground truth before you start any decision-making that's qualitative or quantitative. And then, and then what I'd lastly add is that in order to understand macro environments, you need to have a perspective on micro. Uh, it's, it's really hard to make any sort of projections. And I think we're all typically as humans very bad at making sort of projections anyways um, on what's happening in the macro landscape. Right? Like, I'm not an economist. Um, you know, I, I won't, you know, I can't give you a, a very good, honest perspective on GDP and, you know, what's happening in the ecosystem today. But what I can tell you is if you give me uh, a, th a set of thousand companies where I have primary data, I'll be able to give you a pretty good bottoms up view and understanding of how they're performing and how healthy they are um, and the demand signals that go into it, uh, because those are our frameworks. And ideally that can help inform a, a macro perspective, right? As venture investors, our job is to understand what's happening today as clearly as possible. Uh, you know, Benchmarks says this very well. Very well. Right? They, they, as investors, the reason they do well is to understand the present clearly. Um, you, need to, you need to understand that in order to understand the future, which is what is actually happening. It's really easy to say we need to do these five things or we need to build uh, for the future, you know, invest in you know, biotech, you know, sci-fi. And, and, and I think we think of that as well. But you got to understand bottoms up where we are in order to get there. Uh, if you want to get to the moon, you know, you got you to launch rockets to get there. If you want to 3D print on the moon, you got to get there first as well. And so understanding point A to point B, transportation, supply chain, all of that is a part of what we do. Yeah. How does that change when uh, the macro environment changes? So take like COVID-19, for example. Uh, there's a number of shifts, obviously one, everyone's got to go sit in their house. Uh, two, you get things like in the fundraising environment, uh, there's definitely a, a bigger uh, focus on profitability versus maybe growth. Uh, and then three is, I think a lot of people look around and they say, hey, valuations are going to change. They're likely to come down. How much, how quickly, you know, there's a lot of questions. Uh, and if you don't have data, you don't have those answers. Or are you guys able to use some of the data frameworks and, and things that you've seen in those past cycles uh, in order to inform it? Or you know, like how do you actually apply this in these um, kind of weird transition periods? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, what's interesting is that um, when you get raw ground truth data, you're able to go back and reflect on things that might've happened in the past. And, you know, and, and I know it sounds like a history lesson, but like you go back to the 1600s and you go back to the 1700s, 1800s and 1600s, um, you know, the, the, the currency of barter, or if you want to call it the reserve currency in some cases was tobacco, you know, and after tobacco was cotton. And uh, during that same timeline, it was cotton and sugar um, before we started moving into gold and silver because we had production. 
Uh, so if you go back far enough and you say, okay, well, what was happening to these uh, uh, markets at that time, companies that were being created, incentive alignment that was happening, you know, you know, 400 year history of, you want to call it um, colonial and US capitalism, what was happening and, and, and had, had these types of things happened before? And the answer is yes, you know, we, we've gone to war, um, we've shut down uh, demand access to other countries and, uh, and companies uh, as, as, you know, states were being formed here in the United States. Civil War, something very similar had happened. Um, and so you really talk about that and you say, okay, well, what are the types of decisions you make as investors? What are the types of decisions you make as entrepreneurs? What are the types of decisions you make on a macro side for the small to medium businesses that are essentially, what, 99% of, uh, of the employee base in the United States, I think roughly like 1.5 trillion in payroll. Um, like the, all of these things have second, third, and fourth order effects. Um, and so when we think about COVID-19, one, it's a forced government shutdown. I'm not saying that's negative. It's just, that's what it is. Uh, and, and, we're, and we're fighting this war against um, a pandemic that is indiscriminate in some cases, right? Like you and myself, uh, 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 any person of any purchasing power um, um, gets affected. Um, and so what, what, what does that mean for markets when demand can systematically get shut down um, uh, and has to get shut down? And then how long does it take to recover? Um, so as an investor, you kind of have to understand, okay, where are we in that cycle? What is the effect post cycle? Um, and is that still a down cycle of fear? Uh, and then what happens after that? And then what are the companies that are able to sustain and exist within that time frame? Which are the ones that need help uh, or, or subsidization, not necessarily from us. Uh, and then where do you start placing your bets from uh, uh, in terms of uh, growth? Uh, where do you start placing your bets in terms of what needs to be built? Um, that doesn't necessarily have to be software, you know, it's software, infrastructure, technology, energy, insurance, et cetera. Um, the list kind of goes on. And, uh, and where are going to be ecosystems that are going to either be rebuilt or augmented because of what's happening today, right? And so a lot of people look at the short term. What do they say? They say, oh, great. Um, you know, shipments are going up for essential items and groceries are going up. Well, well humans also kind of regress to the mean. Six months from now, are we going to do the exact same thing? And, and I'm pretty sure we're not uh, going to do the exact same thing, but we're going to be really, really close. Um, and so you go back to past cycles. In China, when we had uh, uh, you know, the first SARS uh, situation, that country retrofitted itself to be able to withstand these types of things in the future. And they're doing a pretty good job to get out of it. You, you know, I wouldn't say perfect. Um, and so they were able to get to, to get to some sort of recovery faster. I'm not saying uh, uh, there isn't a downturn, but some sort of recovery. Uh, and so what does that mean here in the United States? And where do we start investing our dollars and our capital and our time? Uh, and, and everyone has a different perspective. And and I think the cracks that you see today are housing, healthcare, and education. We've been talking about it for 10 years, but you've never really seen the cracks till now. Uh, now you see the cracks, right? Like on the healthcare side. I mean, this is a, you know, uh, from a, a overall inflation rate since like 1995, I think it's like 55%. Um, that basically means things have been getting more expensive. It's been getting harder and it's an out of reach for people um, that were what I'd say, you know, a, a plumber that was making, you know, thirty to fifty thousand dollars a year today was making the same amount. Uh, uh, you know, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years ago. I mean, they just make less money than they uh, did today because of that, and that's important. So the unskilled uh, labor workforce versus the skilled labor workforce, uh, and the change uh, of that as well. And so I'm I'm going through a lot of concepts, talking about a lot of stuff, but I think those are the things that are important because those are what drive our demand and our economy. 
And then you have uh, underlying companies that need to support that. May that be small to medium venture backed or large corporations. Yeah. Would it be fair to say when you're evaluating individual companies, you're very bottoms up, but just hearing you talk through a lot of this in past conversations we've had, I think that you guys take this macro view of kind of where, where are we today macro wise, where are we going? And then you go look at the companies in those areas in which you guys believe will have uh, upside in the future. And a lot of times it's even places where maybe they're not popular today, but they end up being. And then when you find those companies, you start bottoms up. Is that a, a fair way to view kind of the process you guys go through? I mean, I'd say on a week-to-week basis, even on a month-to-month or a year-to-year, we might have theses that continue to get formed top-down by our bottoms-up work and vice versa, right? Where uh, our assumption, like, I, I think the way we think about it is the, 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 when we get into the room and we're assessing any company, anything bottoms-up, is that we just don't know anything. We just check everything at the door and say, we just don't know. So what are the assumptions we may have made that are wrong? Uh, what are these new assumptions we should start making now based on this data? And how does that help inform us for our long-term capital deployment? Remember, we're venture investors. So our timeline is 5, 10, 15, 20 years in some cases. Um, as an angel investor, I, I, have a, I have an investment from 2005 that's still not liquid. Right? It's still there, and I'm still hanging on. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and then when you start thinking about uh, going from – 10 to 50 to 100 to 200 investments, the, uh, your, your thesis has to be different. You have to start thinking about your portfolio, your liquidity needs um, for yourself and your LPs, uh, but also what you need to do in order to make better decisions in the uh, macro and micro environment. The reason macro is important is you have to understand the bottoms up demand signals you see. Are they going to continue to see tailwinds or are they going to hit headwinds? Are they in a regulatory environment or not? And, and I think you know what you've seen Unfortunately, in, again, housing, education, and healthcare, uh, sort of being the, the main ones I'd focus on, the reason why they've had a harder time is that they're, they're more akin to political and regulatory behavior, uh, where you have institutions that uh, are set to make sure those things uh, stay status quo. It's hard to innovate. And so even if you see a company that's bottoms up, they might have a small uh, niche that's working, they can get slapped down by the regulatory a uh, uh, side of the house uh, and, and sometimes that may or may not work, right? Like in the case of Uber, they hit a lot of uh, um, turmoil, sort of lift. They were able to make it through because what was happening is that we were moving away from a world of being regulated to a world of being unregulated uh, to make it more beneficial to the consumer, make it more beneficial, in my opinion, to the folks that were being employed um, uh, to make money through that, through that remnant inventory, same with Airbnb, et cetera. And so you kind of have to look at that and say, well, what is, what are going to be those types of changes that will happen that are effective uh, for education, uh, healthcare, and, and housing? And uh, the question you ask is, in this environment, is that helping to accelerate some of those industries to deregulate um, and get more uh, innovation and to be able to help build in that direction? Or are they going to stay status quo? Um, and that's where we spend a lot of our time thinking through, which is you have to understand that part of the ma- uh, macro. Uh, and, and gather uh, data on that side as well. And, and, and that's the hard part. Like that's the art on top of the science, which is science is not going to tell us what's going to happen. We're, we can only know what's happening on the ground and we can only know, again, bottoms up, making, you know, actual trends and demand signals. But we don't know how long that's going to last depending on what type of environment, what type of investment we're ranking. Um, and so that's why we do focus a little bit of our time on lobbying. We focus a little bit of our time building those relationships 
um, uh, with uh, you know the central government. And you know, it, I think a lot of people don't like to say it, but you know, I think the biggest threat to the United States is not understanding what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Africa, what's happening in India, and what's happening in China, and in China more specifically. Now, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, like I think longer term, we have a better model of incentive alignment here in the United States, like we have over the last 400 years. However, uh, China understands their incentive model. They're copying us. They're getting into that direction. Um, and even though they are centralized, they've been figuring out ways to deregulate pieces of their economy to be able to innovate the same way which we do here in the United States. Uh, but at the same time, they do have a top-down macro perspective on what they need to focus on. And we've lost a lot of that in my opinion, here in the United States, post-World War II, uh, up until maybe the uh, early to late uh, 70s and 80s, uh, you know, I, I went to a China, what they called the, the China FinTech Conference. Um, and who, here's who put it up. You had the state government uh, of China, uh, the People's Bank, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the name, of China. Uh, you had the top 10 universities uh, stand this up. And there was only one um, uh, outside uh, speaker and one uh, uh, outside participant, and that was me. And I went there with thinking, oh, oh I'm curious to see what was gonna happen. And I, and I, and I did a keynote sp uh, a speech there on behalf of not just us, but even our, our company, Carta, on what's happening in the financial industry. And on there, uh, you know, before I had started, uh, they had a couple days uh, of all the companies that were uh, pitching. You had some of the, uh, you had the heads of government, you had the heads of states there, you had the heads of universities there. Um, you had innovation cycles, you had startup companies there, like the top 10. Um, and then you had folks like Tencent, Alibaba, all these guys there talking about what's going to happen. You basically had the smartest people in the room, regardless of market cap, talking about what is important. And guess what they were talking about? They were talking about how much we need to pay attention to crypto, uh, what reserve currencies look like in the future, where they need to innovate, where they need to subsidize, where the government needs to spend more time uh, uh, helping uh, companies get off the ground. And where in the world should they be paying attention? And you know, luckily for us, uh, you know, I, I, you know, we're, we've been in the lead for a while, but uh, you know, we have to be kind of vigilant. Is that they basically said the only country we need to pay attention to, the only innovation centers we need to pay attention to, nowhere else in the world we need to pay attention to, is the United States and Silicon Valley specifically. It's incredible to hear that that literally we sit around and we don't understand many of these regions, but they're just solely focused on us. Um, you mentioned crypto, Bitcoin a couple of times. Kind of, how do you guys think about uh, that entire sector of the world, and you know what's possible there? And have you done any investing on that front? Yeah, we. So while we were at Social Capital, we invested in a company called Second Market, um, and Second Market um, uh, had had sold a portion of their uh, company. Um, uh, I'm forgetting who they sold it to. Is uh, a Nasdaq. Nasdaq Nasdaq Secondary Markets. That's what it became. And then they became a, uh, a holding company, a, uh, a market maker and investor all at the same time. And so most of our exposure um, through crypto had been through them. Uh, and this is uh, uh, Barry's company. And, you know, they, they were essentially our, uh, our overall holdings and exposure into the crypto markets um, uh, from blockchain to crypto. And you know, over time, what that really did was, one, we got exposure to all these companies like Coinbase, um, some that you guys are in, co-investors with you guys, um, as well as uh, uh, us starting to think about where do we want to spend our time and what are the types of uh, bets that we want to make. 
Um, and, and, and to be frank, we didn't make a lot after that. You know, I, I think a lot of it was for us to understand where are we in that cycle? Are we still in the winter? Are we still in a fear-based cycle of what um, crypto is going to look like, you know, uh, Bitcoin and all the alternative currencies? Uh, and then what does it mean uh, uh, for the space? I, I think w I still have a perspective that it's still very speculative. Um, there is some volatility there. Um, so it's hard to think about how you innovate on top of it. I, I think the, the main thing that's really interesting at the end of the day, and a lot of people have talked about this much smarter than I am, I am uh, about it being just programmable, programmable capital, programmable money. Um, and so when we talk about democratization of capital, what does that mean? Could this be a facility to help augment that? And I think the answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think there has been more innovation on what crypto and uh, this protocol uh, uh, you know, through blockchain and, and, and these methods that you can use outside of the United States and here in the United States. And I think that's where we are weak, uh, where we're not even willing to understand it. We're just so scared of it uh, from like a political nature. Um, and, and that's what we kind of fight to push is, uh, you know, how do, how do we understand it more before we start thinking about investing in it? And I think you've got to have bottoms up investing. You have to have top down investing, top down, uh, uh subsidies in some cases or, or research. Again, I always go back to world war two. Um, you know, the, uh, 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 you know, during the time of Bush and the entity he created, uh, in alignment with uh, our military to be able to, uh, just, you know, do basic research that could help propel industry on top of it. And I think we've lost that. And I think a lot of what I'd like to see over time, not just from the venture community, but accelerators, uh, grant institutions, the government in some cases to move back into, great, maybe crypto isn't where we want it to be today, but what could it be? And what can we start um, uh, incentivizing people to work on uh, that's not just pure bottoms up or uh, speculative in nature. And, and I think what you've seen most so far has been speculative in nature. Some companies getting to a certain level of success, but then stagnate very quickly. Um, and, and where we want to spend our time is not just, you know, uh, financial markets, but just, you know, where does that help across the ecosystem and go back to our roots of you know, what we do really well is understanding product market fit quantitatively, understanding how that can scale and where we deploy our capital towards a business being built. Uh, around uh, being augmented, uh, uh, you know, uh, leveraging and utilizing distributed system, crypto in some cases, uh, blockchain, et cetera, right? Because it's a technology and it's a protocol that you can augment rather than it being the solution. Yeah. How, how do you think about like the market size being either empowering or limiting? And what I mean by that is uh, crypto is big if you talk to some people, but on the grand scale of things, it's very, very small compared to most technology markets or kind of addressable user bases. Um, does that, do you shy away from that? Is it more something, hey, we understand where it is today. And we kind of see if it continues to grow, you know, five, six, seven years from now, it could be the size that we need or, or just like, what's the thoughts there on uh, market sizing? Yeah, you know, the, everything starts small, right? Uh, I, I think people, as I mentioned before, people have a very hard time of understanding exponential growth. Like, like how do you comprehend it? It's hard. Um, and so when you think about crypto, what, what has already happened in the last 10 years, it's amazing, like and how, how much it's compounded. Forget market cap, just the amount of people engaged, uh, the amount of um, uh, open source uh, folks uh, focused on it, uh, applications that our people are trying to put together from payments to wallets to money transfer, even if it doesn't work, who cares, 
people are trying. And then once you get to a standardized uh, framework that people start all agreeing to, that helps propel the next stage, the next stage, the next stage. So, I mean, even with the internet, look how long it took to get uh, up and running. And so, so what I'd say here is that you, you, you've, you have people on the bottoms up doing things um, um, and you have a certain amount of risk capital there. I think the ICO market really fucked stuff up. I, I think there were a lot of people similar to what I'd say 99 to 2001, people just heard the word technology or dot-com and just wanted to get involved. And I'd say it was like the, it's the panic buying on the upward trend, but we're all going to lose out. Um, and so like the moment my mom was saying, Hey, should we look at crypto or my brother-in-law who knows nothing about the space saying, should I invest in Bitcoin? You know what? Things are fucked. Um, and so, and I think, and, and, and we hit that, uh, uh, during that, you know, a, a couple, a couple years ago. And so now the question ends up being like, okay, now we have a foundation. Where do we build from here? And so what I really pay attention to is like, what happens over the next two to five years and five to 10 years with, uh, you know, with Bitcoin as the currency. I, I don't know if it ever becomes a reserve currency. I know a lot of people talk about it. Um, but you know, I go back, I always go back to history. What was reserved for a while? You know, you can say U.S. was a reserve at some point, you know, post-world, sorry, post-Civil War up until World War One. you know, with uh, the, the advent and the, the droppage of, uh, of the gold standard. Uh, but there's always something that people kind of hold on to. And, and, and will Bitcoin get pegged with other fiat currencies? I don't know. Um, and, and what do you build on top of that uh, versus now? But I, again, I always go back to, remember when we had uh, uh, securitization of mortgages, um, uh, mortgage-backed securities, uh, securitized debt, um, collateralized bonds, obligations, loan obligations. That is only 30 to 40 years old. I think everyone forgets how large that industry is in the trillions um, and, and, and how much billions of dollars get traded on that every single day uh, and what that looked like when it started. Pretty nascent. So here we are in the crypto markets. It may not ever yield anything, but it has a lot of legs where we've already started. And so you think forward 10 years, 15 years, what happens? What do you build on top of it? And, you, and you've already seen it. And I think you guys are already investors in, you know, in terms of lending, in terms, again, in terms of securitizing it. It seems small um, and it is nascent, but again, bottoms up, what happens over time? And what are the leading indicators and demand signals that you should really care about in order to either participate, invest, or innovate on top of? Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Um, two questions before you, uh, I let you ask me one question to end this thing. Uh, you're the favorite book that you have or most important book you've ever read. Yeah. Um, so there's always a new one that I'm, I'm reading. I, I actually always go back to uh, reading the same book over and over again. Um, and the books that I like reading are uh, Mastering the Market Cycle. Um, I like reading exa uh, Irrational Exuberance. There's a book that uh, my colleague Jonathan recommended to me called uh, The Righteous Mind, just about how we think uh, and what gets us there from a social contract perspective and social uh, psychology. And I kind of put all of these things together um, and I reread them because my experiences change every three, six, 12 months, every two years they change. And I go back and I reread them and, I, and what, I, what I glean from it is just new learnings. Uh, and so I'm a, I'm a larger fan of rereading the exact same books over and over again uh, versus uh, opening up. And, 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 and I kind of, and the way I, the reason I think about that is that, you know, as an entrepreneur, as an investor, um, you know, you'll read a lot of books uh, about how to become an expert in something. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes five, seven, and people call it seven year cycles. And so a lot of what I try to do is how do I take a lot of these lessons that other people have had on top of what I'm doing today 
and how can I become more and more of an expert of what we can do really well? Not just me as an individual, uh, but as a firm and, and as a team. Uh, and, so, and so those are the books that I like to read over and over again. And, and I think one book that I keep going back to as well uh, is uh, a zero to one by Peter Thiel. Like I, I think I, I'm much more in line with his types of philosophies, not, not, not a hundred percent of them, but probably like a 70 to 80% overlap. Um, and then, and then all of these other concepts and books. And those are probably my favorite books, books that are all around frameworks on how to think. You just rattled off some pretty good ones there. So that's not a bad answer. Um, you, uh, you've got an eye for space and made a number of investments and, and kind of spent a lot of time there. Uh, believe in aliens. Think they're real. <laughs> um, so, so let me tackle why I care about, uh, uh, space or climate change and healthcare education. Um, the, the reason I care about one is that uh, I, I, I am a diehard American. I know it's kind of like a negative thing to say these days, but I'm here. I'm privileged to be born here. Um, uh, you know, we, my dad was successful because of the opportunities that lie here. And so a lot of what I think about is what are the type of next growth factors that are going to come in the United States? What's hard? What's hard to build? And what are the types of companies that we need to invest in to make that happen? So while we have this core business of how we think about quantifying uh, and recognizing and amplifying product market fit. The way I think about it also is just being responsible is there is a certain amount of capital that we want to put because our overall historic loss ratios are low that we want to put towards um, you know, high risk endeavors. But what should those high risk endeavors be? So I think about American exceptionalism um, and American ingenuity and where can that be? I think about 3D printing, manufacturing, parts of education, parts of healthcare. <clears throat> um, and and I think in order to do that, you need to have a certain amount of social capital, human capital, um, uh, and, and access to capital. And, and we're privileged to be in that situation. So we invested in space um, in a company called Relativity Space. Uh, and that was all about 3D printing rockets um, from the ground up, uh, which sounds like a crazy idea when we invested in it, um, uh, uh, where we could, again, where you could build and 3D print a rocket as quickly as possible. And the frameworks we used there was that what could happen where you could design, iterate, um, uh, and launch a rocket in, in sort of the same types of ways in which you think about software? Uh, like if a rocket doesn't work, how can you redesign it, iterate it, and 3D print it and shoot it back up uh, to see if it works? And so that's what this company's been doing. You know, when an engine didn't work, they would redesign, reiterate it, something that would take people one or two years, they could do it in seven days or 30 days. So you take that concept out and say, well, what happens when you can do that, not from just the engine, but the full rocket? full rocket to a multitude of rockets to a multitude of payloads and how do you get from point A to point B. Um, and so their whole goal is like, they want to get to the moon. They want to 3D print on the moon. Uh, and that's what we invested in was a company called Relativity Space. Um, and again, it was all about uh, American ingenuity, um, American jobs focused on building hard things. Uh, and so they're based out of uh, LA, <coughs> Seattle and uh, Louisiana. And, um, and another company was a company called Saildrone. It was the same concept, which is, you know, just as much as space, the world's oceans are just as hard to innovate on top of and below. Uh, what do you build? And uh, there's this company called Saildrone that started, you know, uh, as a science project, but they were able to finally go from technology to platform to problem solving. Uh, and they do the same thing, you know, instead of NASA, the World's Oceans Institute uh, that's similar is called NOAA. Uh, and the company works, uh, you know, very closely with them, uh, as well as being here in the United States and working with world governments, but even U.S. government, 
to help understand, measure uh, 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 quantitatively our world's oceans, our weather, and what's happening on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, not on a month-by-month -month or not by a, a, you know, a cyclical six-month six time frame. Uh, you you want to know what's happening in the Arctic and the Antarctic now. You want to know what's happening on the buoy system that's in the Pacific Ocean. You want to know what that, because that is what informs us on what's happening for our uh, world's oceans, our weather, our fisheries, uh, oil exploration, if you want to call that from an energy perspective, defense of the United States, if you want to go that far as well, uh, uh, all the way into you know, how that affects our agricultural components here uh, on land. Like all that stuff is important. Um, and so those are hard things and you have to invest in those. And so we don't take as many bets in those areas, but we take a small amount of bets that we think uh, are again, bottoms up where we have a macro perspective and we want to take moonshot bets. If you want to even call it moonshots, we'll do that. But we're investing behind people that know how to do this. And we're spending a lot of time asymmetrically with these teams where we can help them step function. Um, and, and that's how I kind of think about it. And then to answer your question about aliens, do I think they exist? That's a hard one, right? Um, I think, in the infinite realm of possibilities of what the universe looks like, uh, my, my scientific side of me says, yes, they have to exist. We just don't know what they're going to be. Um, are they humanoids or not? Uh, or, or are they some sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, bacteria or single cell organism that exists outside here. And I think, you know, we have uh, uh, theories about them already existing, you know, on other planets. Uh, may they be dead or alive. Um, but uh, I, I do think aliens exist, and, and the question ends up being, are they more akin to uh, how we are? And you know, I, in, in my in my lifetime, I'm not sure I want to meet anyone uh, that's an alien or, or anything, because uh, that would scare the shit out of me, um, because that would ruin the framework so around how I think about this world and, and how we think about the macro. Uh, but at, at a high level, yeah, I mean, I, I do believe aliens exist, and, and you know, that might be, think of me as an ace here, but uh, you know, the yeah, that, 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 that's how I think about it. My, my whole thing is just if, if they exist, let's make sure we discover them. They don't discover us, right? It never really works out when, uh, when you're the invaded. It's much better to be kind of the invader if, if it has to come to that. Yeah, I mean, there's this uh, book. I don't know if you've read the Expanse series um, at all. Uh, and then it became an Amazon sci-fi show, then an Amazon show. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting to see how people think about um, you know, science fiction and, and what it really means. My sense is, and as I, mean, as I mentioned, humans are bad at projections. My sense is that, you know, we're focused on becoming an interplanetary species first. Um, you know, and, and I think that's going to, we're going to be focused on for the next 200, 300 years. That's, just, that's, that's what I'd like to see happen. And that's where I'm putting our capital personal and um, uh, our venture firm over time. And, and you've seen some of our first bets there, but we look at that, kind of across the board is that if you think about the word growth and what that means and where we have to go over time with eventually a stagnating population, we'll get there, even though it doesn't seem like that, we'll get there. Uh, and, and new growth opportunities, um, space is one of those areas that we need to focus on because the amount of things that we can do in space versus what we can do here, uh, the physics of uh, being uh, online here in, on earth is very different. Uh, and there's a lot more innovation that happens in space than that can. And so you want to make sure that you can reduce the friction, make it cheaper and build there uh, across the same types of ecosystems that we invest in today, you know, biology, uh, uh, metals production, <clears throat> communication, et cetera. Um, that's going to happen from space. Absolutely. Uh, you get asked me one question to finish this thing up. What you got for me? 
Yeah, so why did you decide to invest versus operate? Same question back to you that uh, you love asking us. <laughs> um, I think that what I really began to realize is uh, I enjoyed building businesses, but my favorite part about building the business is going from, hey, this would be a cool idea. Let's test it. Let's see if it works. Let's get some product market fit. Uh, and then when you get into the true like scaling part of it, um, to me, the day-to-day pieces of that were less exciting. Um, and so for me, it was, how do I go as early as possible, find founders and kind of continue to just do that same exercise over and over again in different markets. Um, and when I first started investing uh, full-time, I don't know if I really had like some master plan, right? It was more of just like, I know this one thing I really enjoy doing. I know a lot of other people that are trying to do it, but they've never gone through that process before. Um, and, and so as I kind of did that more and more and more, what I then started to understand is, hey, I like these markets. I don't like these markets. Here's the types of teams I like to work with, all of those things. And, and it's one of these pieces where you guys obviously have a lot of software um, and, and data analytics that, uh, that help inform this stuff. But like you specifically have probably done, you know, th- that initial exercise, I don't know, 100 times now. Right. And it's just like, you've got the pattern recognition, you know, certain things that uh, are not so much shortcuts, but just, you can avoid the potholes. You can go ahead and you know, the tests to run, like all of those things can really accelerate a team to get the answers. As much as you get to see patterns, we like any other humans, we regress to the mean. I fuck up all the time. That's why, (laughs) that's why we have this software to help us make, make sure we don't make those mistakes because our, you know, we, our gut reactions, thinking fast and slow are not, you know, uh, are sometimes not in line with what's happening. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been watching you uh, for a while and I think, you know, we've obviously had invested in, in, in one of your companies way back in the day and spent time in kind of watching your progression. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I, I think it's really great to see where you've gotten to things that you care about now more than ever and, and watching that progression. And I think what you do now and how you kind of inform people, it's really important. Um, uh, and I think we all appreciate it. So thanks. Of course. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on here and we'll, uh, we'll definitely do it again. Awesome. Thanks for the time.